Uh, this morning, we are on week three of a four-week journey through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. And if you haven't been with us, 2 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes a great many of the books in our New Testament, uh, usually in the form of a letter uh, that he wrote to a person or a church. And his letter to 2 Timothy is unique because it's his last letter. Uh, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing from the dark recesses of the Mamertine prison in Rome. He's on death row. And it's evident from his writings that he knows it, that it looks like the end is coming and could be imminent. He probably doesn't know the day of his own death, but he's certain as he writes to his mentee, Timothy, that he is approaching the end of his days. And the letter really reflects that. There's a real, almost a palpable sense throughout the letter of 2 Timothy that he is consciously passing the baton of leadership to a new generation of the church. And in every sentence, just about, Paul is focusing with just a great amount of focus on the gospel, the importance of this great central load-bearing truth that we all celebrate and gather around as believers. In the first chapter, he really uh, exhorted Timothy to guard the gospel. Guard this thing. Uh, make sure that the foundations of people's hope is rested on a right and true foundation. We talked about how the gospel is not complicated. It's not difficult to understand, but it is precise. And then in the second chapter, uh, we saw how Paul exhorted Timothy, uh, challenged him to stand ready to suffer hardship for the gospel, that this thing was going to require some sacrifices on his part. Because it is opposed and because it's so needed, that there would inevitably follow hardship. And so Paul uh, exhorted him to be, stand ready to suffer hardship. And now this week, as we enter into chapter 3, which is the next to last chapter, uh, Paul is going to uh, encourage Timothy to continue in the gospel. The gospel is not just something that we give mental assent to. It's not just an intellectual thing that we grasp and comprehend. When we have put our trust in Jesus for salvation, and the, in, the Spirit comes and lives within us, Something supernatural has occurred. The Bible describes it in 2 Corinthians as a new creation. You've been made new. And so what is happening is not just like, it's not like joining a political party or joining the army or something like that where you make a decision and now you believe a certain thing. Something supernatural has happened if you've become a Christian there is now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is the birth within you of new affections. Maybe not all at once. Of course not all at once. We still struggle to put off the old man, as that's the biblical language about our, our old sin nature and our old corrupted desires and passions. But you begin to feel the birth within you of new passions, new affections, new, new longings. And so when we talk about continuing in the gospel... What Paul is, is going to be pressing in on Timothy's mind is the fact that the gospel is not just something that we believe, it's something we live from the sincerity of our inner hearts. 
And so the way we're going to do this, we're going to divide the chapter into two parts. I'm going to read the first half, and then I have some thoughts on it, and then we'll read the second half, and I'll have some thoughts on it. Uh, The first half is verses 1 through 9. Let me go ahead and read this, which, by the way, uh, my sermon started about like 20 pages, (laughs) and then I had to shorten it way down. We might have to come back to this at some point. There's a lot in here that we're not going to get to. Um, But let me just read these words, Paul to Timothy. It it is kind of a shame that I take nine concise verses and then I bore you to death for like an hour with (laughs) all of my thoughts on it. But here goes Paul. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people." For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not go very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men." Now, one thing I want us to see here is that Paul begins the third chapter of 2 Timothy in kind of an emphatic way. He says to Timothy, and also to us, he starts by saying, understand this. And here's what Paul wants us to understand. He says that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty and great evil. I think quite a few people, when they hear those words, last days, they think that Paul is speaking prophetically about some future period of time, but he's not. In our New Testament, the phrase last days is synonymous with the church age in which we're living. It refers to that period of time following the resurrection of Jesus right up to the present day and extending for who knows how much longer until the day of Jesus' return, and I hope it's today. I probably don't have to do much to prove my point here, but I'll offer just one passage which demonstrates that the last days Paul is speaking about is not some day yet to come, but he has in view it's the day that he's living in. For example, in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes, "...long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets." But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I I could show you other proofs from scripture as well. But the meaning here is plain that the church age in which we're living today are the last days. And so when Paul says in the last days, Paul is not speaking of days yet to come. He's speaking about the days in which Timothy was living and in which we're living today. And the reason why I think this is important to spend time on thinking about is because when Paul thinks of the last days, he's describing your current context, the current context for the work we're doing as a church and in which we're trying to live as followers of Jesus. 
He's not speaking about some future period of time. He's talking about today. We are not in the calm before the storm. We're mid-blizzard. So he says, understand this. And part of what we should understand is that what follows is a description of a right-now reality. Let's look again at how Paul describes the people of these last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul says quite plainly that they do not love what is good, and they do not love God. But what they do love is themselves, and money, and pleasure. I think if we were to put this in modern terms, Paul is saying that people in the last days will be narcissists, lovers of self. They'll be materialistic, lovers of money, and that they'll be hedonistic, lovers of pleasure. And what Paul is eager for us to see is that when we replace a love of God with a love for other things or a love for ourselves, all kinds of nastiness and brokenness and relational hurt is what follows. It's a disastrous thing to see people orient their lives around the wrong love. When we look at Paul's catalog of ruinous, misguided loves, we see that every moral failure that has ever ensnared us, that has ever ensnared me, or has ever enticed a fellow believer away into compromise, was due to one of these three traps. I want to give you a challenge. If you, uh, I know there's a lot of us now have Roku and stuff. We don't watch as many advertisements as we used to. But if you watch an advertisement, I want you to ask yourself, which three of these loves is this advertisement appealing to? I can almost guarantee you, if you're watching an ad, maybe during the Super Bowl or something, say, is this ad appealing to my love of self, my love of money, or my love of pleasure? Almost every time. It's incessant. Narcissism, materialism, hedonism. These three loves, everything in our culture is encouraging us toward them. Or, you might look, like I just said, all kinds of nastiness follows when we make these loves the great center of our lives. And so I might just ask, instead of a relationship, think of a relationship in your life that's twisted and broken. And I'm willing to bet that at the root of whatever went wrong, whatever made it become so twisted and broken and wrong and painful, that at the root of it was a ruinous love of self or money or pleasure. That's where it went wrong. It made people a thing to exploit and a means to some selfish end, and it's nasty. When Paul writes his letter to Timothy, he was writing to Timothy, not about Timothy. 
But I think we can gain some insights into what kind of man Timothy was based on the sort of things that Paul chose to say to him. Paul and Timothy, I think, were two really different kinds of men. Our first introduction to Paul is he's kicking in doors and dragging people away into prison. He, he's a, he's a, he's a, he helps in the stoning of Stephen. He is an aggressive, pugnacious, argumentative man. He doesn't back down from any fight, any intellectual challenge. He is a brawler intellectually. And I think when we read his letters to Timothy, we come away with the distinct impression that Timothy, although a gifted man and a sincere man and I think a courageous man, is not that. Timothy, I think reading between the lines, we get an impression that he's kind of deferential. He's respectful. He tends more towards the role of diplomat than prophet. And Paul is very different than that. He's a pulpit pounder. He, <laughs> he, he goes, he runs to where they're, you know, causing a riot and stuff. And Timothy's like, well, you know, let's wait till things cool down. Paul says things to Timothy like, uh, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. I think if Paul, if somebody said to Paul, don't let people, he'd be like, of course not. <laughs> of course not. That's not how I am. But he says things to him like, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self, you know, not a spirit of timidity. I think that's, I think Paul is talking to Timothy, but we start to learn some things about Timothy by the things that he's saying. For example, when uh, Tim, Paul uh, wrote to the church in Corinth about Timothy, Timothy was going to come and minister among them, and he says this to the church in Corinth on Timothy's behalf. Kind of like a little, like kind of like a big brother saying, "Take it easy on my little brother." <laughs> he says, "When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." In other words, don't run him off. Don't don't be hard on Timothy. Timothy's not like me. And when Paul says to Timothy, understand this, now he's talking to Timothy, but I wonder what it says about Timothy that Paul felt it necessary to put this to him so emphatically. Timothy, and it's almost like in the, in the letter writing equivalent of grabbing somebody by the shoulders <laughs> to say, Timothy, understand this. I wonder if perhaps Timothy had a rosier or more optimistic view that the culture would moderate, that this is a temporary season, they're throwing us in prison, and it's bad out there, but I think things will get better. I was just talking recently with somebody who moved up here to the county within the last year, and over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of people start moving up here to the county. And when you ask them why they left where they used to live and why they chose to come here of all places, not always, they have a lot of different reasons, but quite often the reason that's given is that things were getting nasty where they used to live and they wanted to live somewhere more wholesome. And I think if Paul was talking to such a person, he would say, understand this. <laughs> understand this about the people who live up here. Apart from Christ, they are lovers of self, 
lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. You'll find no shelter here. I think sometimes we have this idea that the fall has not yet reached north of Bangor. But it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. It's here. And we can see the proof of it all around us. And we can see the proof of it within us. Let's be honest. Look at how Paul describes how it affects a person's relationships with others when they become a lover of themselves rather than a lover of God. They become proud, arrogant, they become abusive, they become disobedient to their parents, they they bite the hand that feeds them, they dishonor them, they're ungrateful, they're heartless, they're unappeasable, can't make these people happy. They're slanderous, and they're brutal, says Paul. They're just brutal. What a word written from the Mamertine prison, this man who has been so horribly treated. They're brutal. They're treacherous, they're reckless, they're swollen with conceit. What a trail of human wreckage has been left behind in the wake of such misdirected loves. This combination of misdirected loves and the broken relationships that inevitably flow from them like pus from a ruptured pustule, these things are the opposite of those statements that we revisit so often with hope and genuine longing here at State Road. We really want to see these things realized here among us as sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus. We're striving, imperfectly perhaps, but sincerely, to be a people who love God and love others and love in action. Because this is a more excellent way. This is the way that Jesus modeled for us. This is a way that points the surrounding communities to the truth and the beauty and the excellence of our God. And it is a more joyous, happy way to live out our days under the sun, especially in community. So when we use these statements, it's not just that we want to avoid nastiness or anything like that. We really do believe that this is what Jesus modeled for us. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Here at State Road, we've been called and set apart for the Great Commission purpose of living in the midst of these days as true-hearted disciples of Jesus and also to go to those who are far off and encourage them to come join us as Jesus followers also. And that word disciple, it's not used much outside of Christian circles. It's kind of a Bible-y sounding word. It means a fully committed follower of Jesus, a sincere from the heart imitator of his example. And the way we go about making disciples is by emphasizing those things which Jesus commanded in his teachings and modeled for us during the days of his earthly ministry. And we've summarized those three things into these statements, love God, love others, love in action. Which, by the way, those who love themselves and love money and love pleasure, they also love in action, don't they? It's not that uh, we are unique in following Jesus' example and loving actively. 
every human being loves actively. What we love, we do. And what we do reveals what we actually love. And that's the thing that we, that's why we have to make explicit and talk about it in our talk about making disciples. It's very easy to say, yeah, I love God and I love people. But then if I live as a lover of self and money and pleasure, I deny those first two statements. And so one of the things we want to make explicit when we're talking about being a disciple of Jesus, a sincere from the heart imitator of his example, is that our love of God and our love for others finds expression in the way we live our lives and spend our money and what we do with our time. This should find concrete expression in the day-to-day of our lives. But these three statements are not just something we pulled out of thin air. This is what Jesus said. You might remember the scene in Matthew 22. Jesus is teaching, and a lawyer comes to him, I think, with what he thinks is a very clever question. <laughs> what, do you, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest of all of them? And Jesus answers him, doesn't skip a beat. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Love God. And then the guy didn't ask for the second greatest commandment, but Jesus goes right into it. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a freebie. <laughs> Here's the second greatest commandment. It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. And then Jesus makes an incredible statement. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of God's revelation to man can be summed up in these two statements. All of his moral law, all that is right and good, ultimately fall into these two categories of loving God and loving others. There it is. And then, of course... Uh, the Bible is very clear that a biblical love is always active. It's always finding expression in what we do. For example, 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so we add the third statement to make explicit what's implied throughout the Bible, that that love should find expression in, in action, in what we do. And when you replace love of self love of money, and pleasure with a love of God and love for others, you find a community that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. You find a community that's full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, that's what I long for, don't you? I really want that to be true for me. I want that to be true for our church. I want the gospel to so shape the way we are in our, the privacy of our inner selves that that f- overflows into a community that in all sincerity lives this out. Notice I say sincerity, not perfectly. The Bible's full of language that we should be bear with one another, long-suffering, forgiving towards one another, Guys, we're, all, we're not yet perfect, and I'm so grateful for a church family that has been gracious and forgiving to me. Sometimes I say a lot of words, and sometimes my words are not the correct ones. <laughs> I say things wrong. You guys are very gracious and forgiving and patient with me, and I'm assuming that that's how we treat one another as well. But 
my experience in the church with all of her faults, with all of her serial infidelities, is I had feel like I do not live among a people that are brutal. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the honesty and the loving forgiveness, the patience, and some of the fruits of the Spirit that I see lived out here among us. I'm so, so grateful to have my family live among such a people. And again, don't get a big head. You're not perfect. Stay <laughs> We're not perfect. I, we all know it. But I do see the sincerity. I do see the sincerity. And so Paul begins in these first verses in a very pessimistic way. He looks out at a world and he sees that this world is governed by misdirected loves. The world loves the wrong things. And what they love is finding expression in what they do, and what they do is disastrous. It's wrong, it's exploitive, and abusive, it's brutal. And now he transitions in the second half, and we pick it up here at verse 10. This is what he says to Timothy moving forward. He says, you, however, oh, underline it. (laughs) After his description, this terrible, pessimistic, dark vision that he has in verses 1 through 9, he now says, you, however... State Road, you, however, we see all of it, but here's a different vision. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, again, circle that, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as I've already pointed out, all of this behavior that Paul points out in the first half of the chapter, all the antisocial, relational brokenness, disobedience, treachery, haughtiness, all of it, all of this is the inevitable consequence of godless self-centeredness. And it's a pretty dark view that Paul lays out. But then in the second half of the chapter, he has some good news to share with us. There is a more excellent way. There is a radical solution to these problems, and it begins with lives being transformed by the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul called Timothy to guard the gospel. Chapter 2, stand ready to suffer for it, and now he's going to urge Timothy to continue in the gospel. It's a charge to walk in the midst of our generation as a living reminder of Jesus. He says... Uh, of Jesus, of whom is said in Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you know what those words out of Philippians 2 are describing? They are describing a complete absence of narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. The humility on display in Jesus in Philippians 2 is a rejection of those things. It is a life that is totally oriented around a love for what is right and good, a love for God. They describe love, humility, self-control, and a yielded, honoring obedience to the Father. It's interesting that Paul, when he's describing this wicked generation, highlights repeatedly in other books and other letters that he writes as well, disobedience to parents. But you know, when Jesus went to the cross, he was yieldedly obedient to the desire of his Father. Uh, he's really modeling that for us, and it's, an, it's something we shouldn't overlook. In verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in it. In verse 10, he starts the sentence by saying, you, however, and then in verse 14, he begins by saying, as for you. Paul is saying to Timothy and also to us, be different. Be different from all those people described in those earlier verses. And then he goes on to describe two means of grace that God has provided to help shape Timothy into someone who loves God, loves others, and love in action. It would not be a helpful sermon if I just described all that nastiness, and it really wouldn't be a very helpful letter if Paul wrote all about all that nastiness, and then he just said, Timothy, be different. You guys, be different. <laughs> That's no good. That's not helpful. What do you do with that? But what Paul is going to go on to describe after saying, you, however, is two means of grace that God has given you to help keep your love oriented correctly around loving God, loving others, and love in action. Two means of grace. And the first is the one another community of the church. Paul begins with the church as a, as a place where Timothy has been helped to keep his love oriented around the right things. He says, you, have, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So the first means of grace that Paul points Timothy toward that will help him continue in the gospel is the community of the church. Paul begins by encouraging Timothy to look to his own example. In shorthand, bullet point fashion, Paul makes reference to his teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions and sufferings. Paul is a, uh, he's a mentor figure to Timothy. And as such, he's invested himself with great intentionality into this young man. He has allowed Timothy a front row seat to the reality of who Paul is under stress, under temptation, when he's falsely accused and willfully misrepresented, when he's beaten, imprisoned, and slandered. Timothy was there. Timothy was there. 
Timothy was allowed to see how Paul handled himself under the worst and most trying of circumstances and and how how Paul spent his time when it was just an idle moment. Timothy would have been in a good position to know how Paul handled money, what his prayer life was like, how he spent time, his zeal for reaching the lost. I think it is a very bold thing, very bold, for Paul to say to Timothy, who knew him as well as he did, look to my example. Of course, you can already see where I'm going with this, can't you? If at some future point I wrote my children or one of you a letter, have I set an example worthy of saying, follow my example in this? I thought it was very wise when State Road first called me to come candidate up here. You guys do have some wise leadership at this church. I thought for sure, because I have such a big family, that the church would just pay to send me up, or maybe me and Sarah, but the church brought up all my kids, (laughs) which I think is wise, because um, they've had a front row seat to the the Josh Tate show, right? They've seen Josh in all reality, and I think it's possible to be a saint abroad and a devil at home and I think the church leader's like, oh, you got to see this whole family. <laughs> like, when he goes to hug his kids, do they kind of wince, you know? <laughs> what, what's going on there? Let's get them alone. Let's ask them. But Paul here says to Timothy, hey, you know me. You know me. Paul says, continue also in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. And so, a couple things here. One, before I move on from that first thought, um, we all have Timothys in our life. We all do. And they're watching, they're learning, they're taking notes. They're forming judgments about the sincerity of what you say based on how you live and how you conduct yourself. That's a heavy thought. I don't want you to um, walk away from that thought feeling You've blown it. Guys, I've blown it. I'm I'm prone to sinning in all different kinds of ways. I'm just saying that if you have a Timothy in your life who has seen in in you, you have lived out something that contradicts the ideals that you claim to hold. For the sake of your witness, for the sake of helping somebody orient their life correctly around the right loves. If you've blown it in front of someone, I encourage you to go to that person and say, I need to confess something to you. Uh, I don't know how many times this has played out in my home where uh, the kids witnessed some argument between me and mom, and I said something I shouldn't have said, and then I got to go to them and say, kids, I sinned. That was wrong. I don't want to ever give my kids the impression that their dad is morally perfect. But I do want them to know I'm sincere and that I sincerely need Jesus. And I want my church to know that too. I think familiarity breeds contempt, maybe. 
Sometimes familiarity just breeds an honest picture of a person. (laughs) And I think if we continue to walk together over the years, I'll have cause to disappoint you. But I, I hope that in those moments, you'll find me sincere and repentant, eager to confess. We are none of us perfect. And the testimony of who we are as a people is not that we're an exceptionally good people, but that we're sincerely becoming like the only one who was ever good. Truly, sincerely, I'm trying. I want to be like that. And I'm grateful for a church that holds my toes to the fire and holds me accountable to those good, good resolves. So, right, so when I talk about Paul pointing to his example, what an amazing statement. I would love to be able to say that someday if I had to write a letter to you. Look to my example. See how I lived in all sincerity? You know that's the more excellent way that you saw. But maybe what's keeping me from writing that letter is I need to first write a letter and say, do you remember that time? I blew it and I need to confess to you. And I'm so grateful for Jesus who died for that. But that was, I didn't represent him well in that moment. And I'm living with regret about it. Please forgive me. Reconciliation is very important. And we know that because of the cross. But now we move on. In verse 14, Paul says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And here's something I want you to see. In English, that word whom, uh, we might think he's talking again about himself. But the word in the Greek is the plural form of whom. He says, from whom you have learned it, meaning like, it really would be better to render it. um, He's really saying something more like knowing the people from whom you learned it. There's a whole community that has played a role in raising up Timothy as a sincere disciple of Jesus. And among them are these uh, remarkable two women who we really don't know much about them beyond their names, um, but his mom and his grandmother, who Paul mentioned in the first chapter. I think he's alluding to them again when he makes mention of the fact that Timothy from childhood has been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, Timothy's believing mother and grandmother, his mentor, Paul, and doubtless many others, had walked with Timothy as imperfect but sincere followers of Jesus. Paul is going to get to the Bible as a means of grace in a moment, but he begins by pointing Timothy to the Bible-shaped community of the church. And I love having this conversation with you, State Road, because we need to know the role that we play in discipling people. You know, right now, the little kids who are down in junior church, they are growing up among us. And are they witnessing a two-faced hypocrisy? Are they witnessing something that's brutal, that's treacherous, swollen with conceit? Or are they witnessing something that as they grow older and the world tries to entice them away to be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure, they will say, no, because I've tasted a different way of living. I've seen and tasted what it is to live among a people who are oriented correctly around a love of God and a love of others, and that they lived that out actively in sincerity. And it was good. It was good to live among a people who didn't exploit me, but who served me. 
sacrificially well. Guys, this is very important, and it's very good and right that Paul points Timothy to the fact that he's seen this. He's seen a different way, a different kind of community, and it was real. This past summer, we spent a a bunch of Sundays on the one another passages in the Bible. And just as we're working our way through those one another scriptures, we can begin to taste as a people this vision that God has for what it would be like if we really lived these things out among us. It'd be good. It'd be amazing. And I'm grateful for the evidence that I see even now that God is doing it. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, one of those one another passages we spent time on, the author of Hebrews says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir one another up to love and good works. Again, he's very interested in this issue of love as the great engine that drives the way we live and good works, love and action. And part of being stirred up towards love and good works, part of one of God's means of grace to keep Timothy or us or any believer oriented around the right kind of loves is not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a critical means of grace God has given us in the church. And when we withdraw from the church, when we isolate ourselves, we do so to our own hurt. Because what will flow into our hearts is not a growing love for God and others, but other kinds of love. And then Paul comes to the second means of grace, which is the Word of God. Paul concludes this portion of his letter by pointing Timothy to the Bible, to the Scriptures. He says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. One of the great hopeful things about these verses which describe the activity of God's Word in our lives is that God's Word changes people. Sometimes, living in these days which are so divided and polarized and opinions are so inflamed, it just seems impossible that somebody could change their mind about something, especially something big. (laughs) Like, I mean... We live in very divided political times. I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on. But just imagine changing, like you all have relatives or friends who are on the other side of the political spectrum. And when you get together, you avoid that topic like the plague. Can you imagine sitting down with them and having a conversation and them being like, oh, I guess I see it your way now. I'm going to go change political parties. No. <laughs> That's not going to happen. I mean, I don't even think like I could change somebody's mind about, I don't know, whether they go to Walmart or Graves. I mean, it just isn't going to happen. They're entrenched. People are hardened these days. 
But one of the things I love about these verses is they are so hopeful about the Bible's ability to change people. Change and transformation happen when people submit themselves in yielded obedience to the Word of God. The Bible not only tells us the way of salvation, but it also works in conjunction with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus, to change us, to transform us. And the purpose of Scripture, according to these verses that Paul writes to Timothy, is fourfold. One, it teaches us things. Uh, when you come to the Bible, you, you come away having a, an understanding of things that's different. The Bible does its work. Now, we're sanctified by the truth. God's Word is truth. And when we come to the Bible, we get a clearer picture of Jesus. We get a clearer picture of God and His character. And in learning about Him, we become more like Him. Remember, we are always becoming what we worship. We will, in the end, resemble what we revere. And when you come to the Word of God and you open it and you learn about God, this is an important pathway to becoming like Him. You cannot hit a target you can't see. And what the tool that God has given us to see Him is this book. And so we, we are all aiming our lives at this target. And if you're not in the book, you don't see the target. You're just stabbing in the dark. And so teaching is a very important tool. The Bible teaches us things that are needful. We need to hear, need to read. The next thing that Paul mentions to Timothy is, ref, is reproof, or your Bible might say rebuke. And reproof is, a, is an aggressive kind of word. This is a Paul kind of word. This is not a Timothy kind of word. This is the, the idea of confronting someone in their error. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to reveal to us the truth of sin and foolishness within. It, 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 it reproves us. And then comes the word correction. If reproof says this is wrong, correction tells us, but here's what's right. God doesn't just knock us on our butts. He picks us back up and sets us up straight and true. That's the relationship between reproof and correction. The Greek word for correction means exactly that, to stand something back up straight and true. Like uh, the Boy Scouts, uh, that my, my, my sons belonged to this troop, they went and they were trying to clean up a cemetery. And part of their work was a lot of the gravestones had fallen down. And so they had to correct them. They were trying to stand them back up straight, you know, and helping them continue on. And that's the idea behind correction. We're all out of plumb. We're crooked. We're not straight. But then correction comes and kind of gives us a nudge and helps us stand up straight and true. And then comes training. This idea above training takes the soul transformation process even further. Um, right now, I don't mean to call out Jack, but my son Jack is getting his learner's permit. And I've already done this with two of my other kids, Bowden and Lucy. This is my third time. And we're out cruising around on the drive. Now, if I only helped my kids learn how to drive through correction, most of our conversations would happen in a ditch or wrapped around a tree, right? <laughs> right? So, 
So when training in righteousness has this idea that bef- you're anticipating something that might come up and you're coaching them up in advance. Like, well, I don't want to have this conversation on the side of the road between Washburn and Caribou. I'm going to have this conversation in the parking lot before we even turn the key in the ignition. Right? You cannot drive forward while looking in the rearview mirror. And so training a person in righteousness is about getting out ahead of potential problems. So you're driving down the road, and you say, okay, so just this is an imaginary scenario, but what would you do if a deer just came out? You know, that's training in righteousness. Somebody hit a deer on the way to church there. <laughs> I heard about that. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> that was not, that, that's in the paper. I, I'm not making fun of you. So reproof and correction come after something wrong has come. Uh, But training in righteousness is about a forward-looking attempt to get out ahead of that. And so what, what Paul is saying is that when you come to the Word of God, it requires some humility because what you're saying is if if I pick up the Bible and I read it today, part of what I'm saying to God is I don't know stuff. There's things that I need to learn that I don't know. That's a humble statement. It's the stuff of arrogance to say, I've got this all figured out. I get the gist, right? But humility before God says, I need to read your word because there's a lot I don't know. And in knowing stuff, I'm going to be helped. And then reproof requires even more humility. It's the belief that I'm wrong in ways maybe I can't see that I have a big Josh Tate-sized blind spot. Pride is blinding. Pride is at the root of all sin. And when I come to God's Word, I'm, a part of what I'm saying to God's Word is, what a part of what I'm saying to God is, help me see. Re- rebuke me. This is the stuff of David's prayer in Psalm um, 139. He says, search me, God, and know my ways. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says to God, help me see if I'm in any offensive way. I don't see it but you need to rebuke me if I am. And when I come to God's word, I'm entertaining the possibility that I'm out of position and I don't even know it. I need to be rebuked. This is part of one of God's means of grace to help reorient my life around what's good and what I should love. And then correction also requires humility. It means I don't have the wisdom to see the right way. I don't have the vision to see how I'm wrong, and maybe I don't have the wisdom to know what's right, but when I come to God's Word, I'm saying to God, please correct me. Lead me in the way everlasting, says David. That's, show me if there's any offensive way, reproof, and lead me in the way everlasting, that's correction. And then train me in righteousness. God, coach me up. (laughs) Help me get out ahead of what's coming. Help me see it, believe it, and embrace the truth of it. And then he begins with this, and then he ends with this statement that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse makes it plain that the Bible contains all that we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. This can do it. We can live a life that's pleasing to God if we would come to the Bible. And I think an important part of what the Bible commands is that we would live within a Bible-shaped community. 
where we would seek to be a blessing and a help, and we would seek to be blessed and helped by others who know us as well. And so these are the two means of grace that Paul points Timothy to, and I think that it would be the very stuff of foolishness for us to neglect them personally as well. Living in the midst of these days where there's such a spirit of confusion, where there's people are, are living those verses one through nine. They're lovers of the wrong kinds of things, and all kinds of hurt flows from it. One of God's means of grace to help you reorient your life around a love for God and what's good is to be a part of a Bible-shaped community and to be in the Word personally. These two things have the ability to help us live as lovers of God, lovers of others, and love in action, to be a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus in the midst of these days. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for the book of 2 Timothy. I thank you for the way that you're growing it in my own heart, day by day. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live out what we've seen uh, here in your word today. God, we certainly are living in the midst of times. God, as, as, as Paul said to Timothy, God, you've helped us to understand that in the last days there will come great difficulty and evil. But Father, I pray that here among us it would not be so. God, I pray that you would grant us the ability to respond to sin in our own lives with repentance and sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters with forgiveness and grace and honesty. Father, I pray that you would help us live out a more excellent way that we might, with a straight face, say to the surrounding culture that we have found something better. God, that we have tasted a community that is oriented around different loves than the narcissism, the materialism, and the hedonism which is so in evidence in the culture. God, help us bring, bring to maturity in our lives the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God, let these things be real among us. God, as we spend time with one another, I pray that we would grow towards you. And as we spend time in your word, we invite you to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. God, we want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want to live lives that are worthy of you and that please you in every way. Help us to do this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.